Welcome to All Things Dorothy's Daughter. This is your weekly episode. And this month, as you know, we have been talking about from struggle to success. And I have a fabulous guest on with me today. And he is going to talk about his struggle and getting back to success from having a stroke at the age of 49. Now, I know a number of you have family members, friends, those that you've heard have had strokes before. And my guest today gave me hope, perspective, encouragement to know that you can come back from so many things in your life. And I appreciate having him on. Make sure you go to my All Things Dorothy's Daughter Facebook page, because on that page, I will have a video. It's a YouTube video. Um, My guest is one of the people in that video, and his um, physical therapist, trainer, coach, um, this gentleman does a fantastic job of getting people back on their feet. So make sure you go on and take a look at the video after you listen to this episode. Thanks. You know, everybody in this world that knows somebody who has had a stroke or impacted by some kind of neurological deficiency, and to know that there's resources that are out there and to know that there is, you know, life after these types of events, you know, I think is always a helpful discussion to have. Yep. That's definitely for sure. But first, I think I first will want to know kind of, you know, what, give it just an overview of your life before the stroke, because what I want to hear is kind of how did you get through it, through the stroke and kind of how you are now, right? From a, from a personal perspective, you know, did your perspective change? But my first question is kind of tell me a little bit about you before the stroke and then we can kind of get into what happened and, and how did you even identify it? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, mean, I think for me personally, you know, it, it was, you know for, your, for your listeners, you know, I was born and raised here in, in Southern California, I was born in the, in the Culver City area and lived out here in the United States, you know, until I was eight years old. Uh, both my mom and dad are from Costa Rica. So at the age of one, we actually moved back to Costa Rica for a period of five years. And I actually came back uh, into this country at the age of six, you know, as Spanish being my primary language. So here I am, you know, as an American citizen, leave the country for five years, I come back, and, uh, you know, now I'm, you know, like an outsider coming in trying to acclimate to, uh, to a brand new country again. So, you know, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. I've been out here all of my life. Uh, went to school out here, went to high school out here, went to college at Cal State Northridge. I was a business finance major. And really for me and my life and my background, it's always been one of, of athletics. And even from an early age, I was playing soccer, I was playing flag football, uh, I was a big swimmer, really enjoyed the beach and the coast, and was involved in physical activity all of my life. And that really um, has been my life uh, up until the age of 49 when I had my stroke. And uh, for the period of time after college, from the age of 22 to 30, I was a pretty competitive road cyclist. Uh, doing a lot of criterium racing, riding bikes about 150 miles a week and doing extensive training in and around the area. And then I kind of migrated away from uh, road biking and got into mountain biking, uh, spent a lot of time in the gym and got into weightlifting. But everything that I had done uh, over the last 30 years had been in and around fitness and making sure that, you know, I ate well, 
that just really just really have lived my life as a as, as somebody that was very very healthy and even with my my kids and raising them as well i've got a 19 year old daughter alexa who goes to uc davis i've got a 16 year old son evan who was in high school and then my wife and i again uh we've been together for a period of 10 years we just got married back in december of last year so that was a, a wonderful event in my life but our, our whole lifestyle and raising kids and everything that we do is in and around physical activity so, you know, when I went into April of 2017 uh, and I had my stroke, everything that you would expect, you know, a healthy person to do and all the uh, health ailments that you're trying to prevent, like heart attack and things like stroke, you just don't expect those types of things to happen to an individual who's had that kind of previous lifestyle. So it's it was really an eye-opening experience for me. And as I reflect back and we'll get into some of the more specifics, I can understand why the stroke occurred and what I'm doing now to kind of prevent it. But oftentimes we, we, we lead our lives in a certain way, particularly those of us that are involved in fitness, thinking that we're doing the right thing. But if you miss a couple of key components as part of that physical fitness, boy, it could have some really, really devastating results that you never would see coming. And oftentimes they come out of left field. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, Alex. And I know that you mentioned to me that you knew at the moment that you were having a stroke. Can you kind of describe that moment for us? Yeah, so it was typical um, Friday for me. For me, it happened. We were coming off of uh, a Piggy Roman call. Uh, it was a Friday morning. I think we wrapped up the call at about 9 o'clock. I typically, at that time in my life, I was setting up in a downstairs dining area. It was kind of quiet. I would take the conference call there, you know, go through the regular report out that we would do as part of the Friday morning calls. And then... You know, after that call was done at about 9 o'clock, I got up, had a little bit of water, drank some more coffee, and sat down and kind of started to type away at some emails in front of my laptop computer. And as I was sitting there at about 20 minutes, you know, after the hour, I noticed that I got a little bit busy. Just my head kind of started spinning. I said, wow, this is really, really unusual. And kind of just sat there quietly, you know, for about 10 seconds, hoping that it would pass. And it didn't pass, and it went from a dizziness to all of a sudden I felt a complete droop on my left side of my face. And, you know, I tried to speak, and it was very impaired, and then about 30 seconds into that episode, my entire left side gave out. At that moment, I knew exactly what was happening. Uh, I knew that I was having a stroke, and the reason I had known that, as you know, Janine, I've been involved in healthcare for all of my life. I was involved in working at GE diagnostic imaging for 12 years of my, my life right after college and selling MRI scanners and dealing with interventional suites and dealing with hospitals in and around that area. So I was very aware um, of the signs of stroke. And there is a word that's used in the world of stroke called FAST. And oftentimes when you try to educate people on stroke awareness and identifying stroke, think of FAST, F-A-S-T, meaning F, do you have any kind of a facial group? A, for arm, you have any kind of weakness in your left or right side. Uh, S, for speech, you have any kind of slurred speech, anything where it's difficult to speak. And then once you identify that those three things are occurring, T, for time, means you better get yourself into an ambulance and get yourself into an ER because, as you know, there's a critical period for stroke patients in order to really get an assessment, whether it be through a CT scanner or an MRI, and then do an assessment to understand whether or not you're going to be a good candidate for the drug TPA. 
and that TPA is a kind of a blood clotting or a blood breaking clot breaking agent that hospitals use after you verify that you're having having a stroke by way of CT. And you know, thankfully for me, thank God, I've had uh, the the previous experience to work and some of the the interventional neurologists that I've worked with in the past. That whole thing had kind of gotten ingrained. I never really had a family member uh, of late that was very close to me that had a stroke. I had family members that live in other parts of the world that had experienced a stroke, but I was never around somebody at the moment when they were having the stroke. But to be able to recognize it, uh, I was very fortunate, very blessed that it happened to be a day where my wife, Jenny, was upstairs. You know, I, I called down to her. She was on a conference call, and it's very rare that I would ever call down to Jenny. And when she heard my voice and when I was calling for her, um, she knew something was wrong. And she was downstairs with about 10 minutes or 10 seconds. Uh, she came down. I said, hey, Jen, I don't want you to panic, but I'm having a stroke. Please call the ambulance. And she went ahead and did that, you know, like a rock star that she is. And within about 10 minutes, uh, Janine, we had the ambulance there doing the assessment and in my home, you know, doing all the right things and, and getting me prepped for, for transport. Wow, thank you for sharing. That's really amazing. I'm sure you're like, Jen, don't panic. She probably was looking like, what do you mean don't panic? But good that she didn't. <laughs> I would have been freaking out. So I want to make sure I, I, I captured that, though, because I want to make sure that my listeners hold on to this, because I know several members, especially in my community, that have had strokes, and I have not seen them recover like you've recovered. So it's so critical that they know you know, understanding FAST, F-A-S-T, guys, for the facial droop, right, Alex? That's the first one. And yeah. arm, did you say numb, an arm numbness? Or you can't move arm it? Numbness or arm, yes, arm numbness or arm weakness, correct. Okay, and then um, your speech will be slurred. That's the S and the time, you know, so it's urgent so that you can get to the ER and see if you're a candidate for the TPA drug, which could potentially you know, help, help someone get to the place that they can recover. Um, because if I've seen a lot of people and I'll be honest, even with the, with the listeners that I thought it was like, Oh, people aren't going to look good unless they have many strokes, right? You hear about people having these mini strokes or that they're senior patients or people, but not as, not as young as you. And so this is, um, thank you. This, this is just so fascinating and great for me to have and for the listeners to share and fair, share it with their family members. Um, so what happened after that, Alex, and how long were you in the hospital? How long did you have therapy? Let's kind of start there. Yeah, and that's helpful. And I'll just kind of continue from the moment. I think it's important background to have, if you don't mind, Janine. No, please. The moment that the, the ENT arrived, you know, I, I felt bad because there, you know, I, I had already self-diagnosed myself. My wife knew that I was, you know, I was having a stroke. And of course, when they come in to assess you, you got these young EMTs coming in, they're doing the workup, asking a lot of questions. And I don't know what expletives I used, but I'm sure I used a couple. But <laughs> it, it, it was enough for them to get me out of the house within three or four minutes and get me into the ambulance. And I basically said, hey, listen, guys, I, I'm, I'm having a stroke. Let's get to the ER. Let's get me on a CT scanner and let's get this thing moving. So you know, they hooked me up pretty quickly. And I think from the time that I had my onset of symptoms, you needed about 9.25 or so. To the time that I actually arrived at Los Robles Hospital, I think it was about 9.50. I think by 10.10, I'd already had a CT scan and I already had an IV set up with the, with the TPA delivery. So it was very fortunate that they were able to identify it. Uh, my particular stroke ended up being an ischemic stroke on the, on the right side of my brain. So typically what happens, the right side of the brain controls the left side of the body and vice versa. And my stroke had impaired 
my entire left side. So, you know, with that TPA uh, administration of, of, of that drug, you know, I basically, for the following, you know, four to five hours, I was in the, in the ER, and they continued to monitor me until I got transferred into the ICU, where they continued to monitor my progress. And, you know, what had happened over the following five hours, you know, my situation actually deteriorated a little bit further to the point where I just, you know, I couldn't move my left leg, you know, at all. My left arm it was losing its ability to move. They had me shrugging my shoulders, and I was having a tough time doing that. So it was beginning to be a, a little bit scary. I really didn't realize uh, to what extent the, the stroke had impacted me. Uh, but we continued to monitor that progress, and it went through the night. And they gave me a series of MRIs over the following two days. And I ended up, you know, staying in the, in the ICU for a period of eight days, having multiple MRIs, having continued monitoring. They put me into, um, into a kind of a hypertensive, controlled hypertension mode where they would allow my blood pressure to rise beyond 200 and allow the TPA to kind of circulate and kind of permeate the brain and making sure that it really uh, could do everything it could to, to break up the clot. And, you know, the unfortunate part about it is, and it kind of sounds, you know, counterintuitive, is that the, the clot was so small and so deep in the brain, it was not the type of clot that they could retrieve with a catheter and have an endovascular uh, specialist go in there and pull it out. Had, a big, had it been a, sudden, a, a much bigger clot, They'd have caught, could have gotten in there, captured it with the basket, and kind of retrieved it. And the impairment that I had, you know, probably you know could have been a lot, a, a lot less. But um, that is kind of what it what it occurred during that period of time. And again, during the the ICU stay, it was you know constant testing every hour. I'd be you know asked to kind of wake up, and making sure that I knew my name. They just wanted to make sure that the stroke hadn't uh, hadn't caused greater deficiencies in the right side of my brain. I think by the fifth or sixth day, they had figured out that, you know, whatever damage the stroke had caused, it pretty much come to an end. They ended up doing a diagnostic angio, where they put some dye into the brain, and they were able to do a full assessment of, you know, the, the damage moving forward. So, you know, they were able to diagnose, you know, kind of what had occurred. You know, the prognosis was going to be that, hey, I should be able to make, you know, a semi-full recovery, but it was definitely going to be, uh, you know, a six- to nine-month process in that, you know, in that in, in that road to recovery. One of the things that was interesting, though, is that I remember, you know, being in the ICU and, you know, texting my bosses at work and letting them know, hey, you know, I'm having, you know, I just had a stroke, but, you know, I'll be, I'll be back to work in the next week or so. <laughs> I didn't realize, <laughs> I, I didn't realize, you know, the level of impairment that I was going to have. And when I was told that I was going to get transferred from the ICU and then from there I was going to go to rehab hospital for two and a half weeks, I mean, my heart just, absolutely sunk. I mean, I realized that uh, life moving forward was going to be a bit different for me, uh, mm -hmm. that this whole stroke episode had impacted a part of my brain and the cause enough impairment on the left side of my body that the road to recovery was going to be much greater than I had ever anticipated. So lucky for me, you know, I've got family members that live in and around me with my wife, Jen, my kids. They were all very, very supportive, but I can definitely tell you that the time in the ICU sitting there, you know, at 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, being woken up every hour to do neurological testing and making sure that your cognitive functions were all there, you know, really told me that, you know, we're, we're definitely in a, in a different type of uh, type of situation that needs to be assessed very carefully. And, you know, this was a serious life event that had just occurred. So that 
was something that for me really was difficult for me to kind of grasp being a type of individual that was involved in sports. The thought that I had this little tiny blood clot that took me down the way that it did, I just couldn't come to an understanding or grips how that could possibly occur. So I think for me, that first week in that ICU, the emotional impact and the roller coaster ride that you go and understanding, am I ever going to be able to walk again? Can I ride a bike? Can I provide for my family? And I begin to be able to hug my kids. All those things, you know, play a, a deep, deep role in your ability uh, to make a turnaround and, and really find a path to, towards recovery. So there's a whole part of this that, again, is physical, but a, a lot of it, at least half of it, is, is a mental challenge that you have to go through and kind of getting over those hurdles and understanding that, hey, you can recover from this. You have the kind of background through athleticism and the strength that you've been able to, to gain over the years and that experience that will allow you to make a full recovery as a patient that's just had a stroke. So a lot of, a lot of things going on in your mind during that, during that period. So much for sharing that one. And thinking about being in the ICU and all those things going through your head, um, did you reflect back, and I'm sure that you did, or maybe you can share, maybe let me ask the question this way. What sort of things did you reflect back outside of, I want, you know, hugging your kids and, and those normal day-to-day things? Because you mentioned earlier that you were athletic and looking back, there were a couple of things that you could have missed. Um, did you feel regretful? What type of feelings were actually going through your mind? Um, did you blame yourself? What were some of those emotions? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And it is one that, you know, I still reflect on today because as, as I was in there meeting with different specialists and meeting with the nurses, the first thing they asked me, what are you doing here? Why, why are you in here? You know, you, you can't possibly be a stroke patient. And I ended up being, you know, kind of one of those idiosyncratic patients where by the time I left the ICU and I left the rehab, we still hadn't really pegged why the stroke had happened. We knew that it was a stroke. We'd identified it through the MRI, but we just don't know why that had occurred because at that time, my blood pressure had been normal. I just finished the physical two months earlier than I normally take. Um, you know, my diet was really good at that point in time. I had, you know, relatively low body fat all the things that you should be doing as a healthy individual. But the one thing that, you know, I never really kind of pegged and we came to find out later on about three months later was really the, um, the lack of water that I was taking in relative to the amount of activity that I was involved with. So as I mentioned, as I went through this process and I finally got released to rehab two weeks out after I was, I was uh, put in there, one of the things that my cardiologist ended up doing is uh, putting in a loop recorder, which is basically a little chip, as you know, Janine, that basically syncs up to a device every night when you get back home. And it basically it allows your cardiologist to kind of view your heart rhythm over a 24-hour period. And they can basically monitor any spikes or valleys that are occurring throughout the day that might identify a potential for AFib. So as it turns out for me, whenever I get dehydrated, I put myself into a moderate AFib. And as you all know, with AFib is basically, it's an irregular heartbeat that occurs. And when you have four chambers of the heart, whenever any of those four chambers start to fire out of sync, it could potentially create an extra pooling of blood in the upper heart chambers. So that pooling of blood creates little pockets in the heart in the chambers where there's coagulation, little pockets of blood that kind of coagulate. And then all of a sudden, if you're running or just sitting having a cup of coffee working, one of those little clots that is kind of coagulated can kind of go in and shoot up into the brain. So as 
as you go through this process and you're understanding what's happening, uh, the root cause of what occurs to me is that through dehydration, it causes a mild AFib, and that AFib created a situation where I had a small blood clot that ended up, you know, kind of shooting into into my brain. So the hardest part for me is going through that process of the ICU, going into two weeks of rehab, and leaving that process not knowing why this occurred because all the things that I should have been doing, I was doing, and it wasn't until they had put the loop recorder in and two months later in the month of August when I was in rehab, I was at the gym doing some stretches and doing some things. I had an AFib episode, and immediately the cardiologist called me and said, Alex, what is going on? I need you to tell me exactly what you had for breakfast this morning, how much water have you had? It's 1 o'clock in the afternoon. We need to understand what just triggered this AFib. And we went back, and I looked at the amount of water that I had taken in. I think since I woke up at 6 that morning, I had only taken in about 8 ounces of water, and it was already 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So immediately the cardiologist had asked me to sit down, take in 12 ounces of water. Uh, she said, if you're going to be heading to the gym, that's perfectly fine. You know, go for a mild walk, see if you can get yourself back into rhythm. And with three hours or so, I was able to get out of AFib, put myself back into rhythm, and then drank quite a bit of water for the following 12 hours. And since that day, I mean, I have not had another AFib episode. I'm now drinking about 65 to 75 ounces of water. I make sure that by the time 8 o'clock in the morning rolls around, I've already taken in my first 20 ounces of water. And then throughout the day, I, I figure out how to consume the other 40 to 50 ounces that I'm going to be taking on over the next 24-hour period. So luckily for me, I was able to finally, you know, in August, you know, several months after the stroke had occurred, to really identify what the root cause was. I was able to take control of that aspect of my life, and that, in conjunction with the blood thinners that I'm now on, has really put me in a position where I'm able to get back to physical activity and do the things that I used to do. Uh, definitely not the extent that I, you know, the quality that I was able to do in the past, but walking and hiking and some light jogging are all things that I'm able to enjoy today. But I do it under, you know, very careful guidance and observation of my water intake. I take my blood thinners very routinely, and I continue to monitor my diet and making sure that I, I take control of those things on a, on a go-forward basis. Wow. Man, the simplest thing of water, right? And I know you're always asking me, Janine, did you drink some water? You drink some water? <laughs> and I don't drink as much as I need to. I am drinking more, especially now that you're like, Janine, did you drink some water? Just from sharing that with me. You know, and then that, again, the stroke might not, that might not be my issue, but why even chance it? Right. And I just tell people just start adding the layers of what others are doing to stay healthy. And water is a key one. So that's like perfect. Um, tell me this, Alex. So after rehab, you know, two and a half weeks in rehab and then you go home. And I'm sure at that moment you're not at your optimal. The, the way that you are now, you weren't there. Right. Three weeks after your episode, um, your your um, your stroke. So what did you do next? What were the next steps? So, as I mentioned, and I know I jumped around a little bit on the rehab and we kind of glossed over it, but the rehab facility is interesting, the transition between the ICU and the rehab. You know, if you're, and I hate to use this classification, but your, your traditional stroke patients are typically elderly patients. They're typically, you know, maybe overweight. You know, there's, there's a typical um, stroke patient that, that has a situation like this. I don't necessarily fit that profile, but if you're that, that typical patient, the rehabilitation programs that exist 
in our communities, you should do a pretty good job in rehabilitating those particular patients. I was fortunate enough to meet up with the medical director of my rehab hospital, um, who I got a chance to meet the first day you know, I was in. He said, Alex, you know, help me understand what occurred here. You obviously, you're, you're, you're the atypical patient. You typically don't see patients like this in here. And my biggest concern, knowing your, your physical background and all the activities you've done, I've got a feeling that you're going to outgrow the rehabilitation services that we're going to provide in this particular hospital. Because remember, when I got into the rehab hospital, I was still unable to walk. You know, I had, out of the ICU, once you're laying down, you know, for seven or eight days, you're sitting up. Um, you know, I was not able to sit up by myself on the fifth day I was in the hospital. The sixth or seventh day, I was able to kind of stand up, but I was not able to walk and put one foot in front of the other. So, you know, going to the rehab hospital, I definitely knew by the time the eighth day and I, in the ICU had hit that I was going to need some help with it. But my situation going into the ICU is that I was not able to walk more than three or four steps. I basically had to have somebody on each side, and then they had to have a wheelchair right behind me as I took those first steps. But when I met with the medical director, I definitely explained to him what was going on. Uh, he was very encouraging. said, Alex, you know, I, I've seen cases like yours here, even though you're rare. You know, I think with the amount of work that I, I know that you're going to put into this thing, you know, I think we're going to be able to get you walking before we get you out of here. So they assigned me to a couple of great physical therapists. Um, in there, you know, the unfortunate part about it is that, you know, you're only getting about an hour of physical therapy while you're there. You get another hour of kind of speech therapy and cognitive services. And the other rest of the time, you're kind of in the, uh, in the room. And the nurses are coming in. They're teaching you how to, you know, eat again with one arm and do all these things while you're trying to restore your left side of your body. So that part was very helpful. You know, the services that are available to you in the rehab hospital to get you back to daily living, brushing your teeth, helping you take a shower when you're, you know, one side of your body is not functioning properly. Those were all great skills that um, that those rehab hospitals within our communities can provide for you. But what this medical director had done for me, he knew that, you know, I was an individual very motivated to get back to my previous self. And he started making some phone calls uh, with a couple of outside physical therapists that he thought I would be able to kind of mesh very well with. They were very like-minded in terms of what our lifestyles were like in the prior to my stroke. And I had a chance to go through two or three interviews with some outside physical therapy agencies that were able to provide home services. And one of the individuals that I had met to me was Paul Mohannon uh, from NeuroMove Fitness. And he was an individual that had been a semi-pro soccer player in Manchester, England. Uh, he was an avid um, triathlete, so was a runner, a cyclist, and a swimmer. And I got a chance to spend about an hour with Paul. My wife Jenny was there as well. And in that hour, you know, I got to meet Paul, know Paul, and we bonded. We bonded immediately. And, you know, the challenge that we had with Paul was that his schedule was so full with other neuroimpaired patients in the Conejo Valley area that I was not going to be able to get uh, any kind of therapy or services from him for a period of about four to six weeks which was just really demoralizing for me. But we went ahead and put my name on a, on a list, and I got out of rehab after the, the, the two and a half weeks that I was in there. And the day after I was out, Paul had basically called me and said, hey, Alex, you know, I've got an opening for you. I want to propose something to you, and, you know, I'd like to make it work. I really believe that I can, you know, help you get back to your previous self, but it's going to require 
a bit of work and it's going to require some unorthodox hours for us to work together in order to make this happen. And Paul's service, uh, his service is an in-home service, as I mentioned. So, you know, we went ahead and set up a time where he would come to my house at 6 a.m. Uh, we trained together for 90 minutes to, to two hours, three times a week. And we started that several days after I had, uh, had left the rehab hospital. And I also supplemented that with some regular rehab that I would come back and do in the rehab hospital there in Westlake Village when it was more focused in around cognitive and speech therapy and things of that nature. But I just was very fortunate that the schedule and Paul's, you know, little world had changed to my benefit. And I was able to get with him very early on and begin that rehabilitation process. And as I mentioned, when I got home, one of the things that, you know, I had to share with you before, Janine, but we live in a two-story house. I've got a master bedroom upstairs. And, you know, my wife had talked to the doctor. My wife had seen the state that I was in at the end of that ICU period. And for me not to be able to walk and take steps, she, in her mind, was thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, what if he doesn't recover? What am I going to do? So she had actually coordinated, believe it or not, with a previous, my, my general contractor that had done a lot of work in my home in the past. She took the downstairs guest bedroom and had an entire bathroom remodeled in a 10-day period, ripped out the bathtub, put slider doors, put handicap rails on the edges in preparation for my return home. Wow. Not knowing if I was ever going to be able to walk, she went ahead and rather than wait, she wanted to have that set up and ready to go. And once my general contractor found out that I'd had the stroke, he pulled off of a job, pulled subs off of a couple of jobs, and said, hey, we got to get this thing done for Alex because I've known him for, for 20 years, and uh, we got to help him out. So just an amazing wow. story, an amazing um, return home. Not only has she remodeled the bathroom downstairs, but with the help of my brothers, had put a series of about 20 photographs representing my life, uh, my kids, my dogs, in that room, so I felt at home when I got home. It was just truly, truly remarkable. Wow. Jen, superwoman. That is awesome. So wonderful. Yeah. Gosh. That, that, I'm sorry, but that did give me tears, Alex. I'm not going to even lie. Because that's a... It's so it's so wonderful because we think about this, you know, the rehab and the, the time. How long would you say? And I know that you are, it's probably going to be lifelong build, continuing to build your strength back up. But I mean, I see you and you're like normal to me, you know, from what happened. And I watched the video and how long did it take you to get, well, from what I saw, what I look at, what I would consider normal, maybe not normal to you, but at least those that are outside looking in. Yeah, you know, I, I would say this. So, you know, the, the video that was shot there, in all fairness, you know, that was uh, the original video that you saw where I was barely walking. That was, you know, probably day two out of, out of rehab. So even though I had done quite a bit of work at rehab, um, I was still walking with a walker. Um, I couldn't, you know, do that without, without having that walker near me. So, there's several milestones that you have to achieve when you're in rehab. You have to be able to walk up and down stairs, you know, with a with a cane or some kind of a walker. At least take 20 steps up. You have to be able to walk at least for a minute, minute and a half with a walker before they release you. You have to be able to show them you can take a bath, shower by yourself, and, and do those types of things. So I was able to achieve those milestones there. But I would say, with the help of Paul and all the supplemental uh, work that I had done. You know, I think I got myself to a point within about eight weeks post-stroke where I felt that, hey, I'm able to now go up and down the stairs. 
I'm able to take care of myself. A lot of the function on my left side of my arm was coming back slowly but surely. But it was it was still very sloppy. I mean, you could definitely tell that I was impaired. And that you have that a very unusual gait as a stroke patient, where you take a step with your affected side and it kind of swivels out to the left and then comes back in. And it's all a direct result of your glutes not firing properly. One of the things that you come to realize, and I think frustration for me during rehab was that rehab is set up to get you functional so you can grab a cup or drink water, brush your teeth. And oftentimes the way that rehab is set up, it's with the right intent, with the right idea in mind. But oftentimes what they don't realize is that there's some functions that really impact your ability to move your arms. So, for example, your scapula in your back, the glutes that, you know, kind of control all the movement around your hip, you really have to focus on rehabilitating those muscles in order to really restore basic functions like um, reaching for a cup of water or brushing your teeth. And I struggled with that because I was sitting in rehab and even the first few days that I was working with Paul, the in-home therapist, you know, he had me reaching for cups and it was the most frustrating thing because I had a cup literally, you know, 18 inches in front of me. I could not reach that cup with my arm. My arm would veer out to the left, veer out to the right, but nowhere near a, a straight direction. So he realized that for me to do those basic functions that he was going to have to kind of take a step back, help me focus on getting strength in my scapula and my glutes to help minimize my frustration because I knew that there was something not quite right for me to not be able to reach. There was more to it than just, you know, my, my, my mind not firing the right way. There was a muscle that had not really started to fire in my scapula to allow me to move in, in that direction. So having Paul identify those muscle groups and putting together a super comprehensive recovery program for that was very key. And I think by the third or fourth week, uh, we had gotten the scapula to fire, we'd gotten the glutes to fire, and it was uh, it was just really remarkable what had occurred and the transformation by just getting those two muscle groups to really begin to kind of sync up and, and restore your daily function. But I would say that you know by, by week eight, I was at a point now where I was able to walk without the walker, I was able to start getting up and down the stairs without assistance. And again, all these things were not happening at a normal pace. Going up and down the stairs took some extra time, and everything around me, you know, was still even eight weeks post the stroke. Mentally, um, I was there cognitively, but things were just still a little bit hazy. Yeah. And then, you know, I come to the realization, Janine, that you know, being at home and thinking about my situation wasn't the right thing for me to do. So I'd actually, I talked to, you know, I talked to James, uh, my boss, and I said, Hey, James, you know, I really would like to get back to work. I'd like to get back to work in, you know, through my office, start taking phone calls, getting some emails going, but I would like to limit my travel, you know, for another several months until I really feel where I'm at a point where I can walk and put my luggage in the overhead and do that type of travel. So the company was great and being able to help facilitate that. Um, I think at week 11 or 12, I actually ended up going to the Westlake office. And, you know, to this day, I, I haven't really asked Peggy, but, you know, she saw me for the first time. I think she had seen, you know, kind of deterioration that had occurred in my body in those 10 weeks. And I think she was really asking, you know, in a very nice way, hey, are you really ready to come back to work? You know, you don't need to do this. You know, it's not it's not necessary. And, and it really was for me, you know, because, again, I wasn't expecting to travel, but I wanted to feel productive. I wanted to feel that I was using my brain again. And I went as far as purchasing some Dragon speech recognition software to load onto my computer 
to allow me to dictate because I still the function on my left side wasn't there. I got tired of typing and pecking <laughs> with my with, with my right hand. So the speech recognition software allowed me to kind of retrain myself and dictate memos and dictate emails. And even though at that time Janine I was probably operating at thirty or forty percent of capacity, the idea of feeling productive and feeling relevant again and being back in the mix from that point on at week ten just really accelerated the recovery cognitively. It gave me the motivation to get back to my normal life. And it really pulled me away from those long days where you're sitting at home, you know, trying to recover, doing the right thing, training in the morning. But it still leaves a good six or seven hours of a lot of downtime. There's only so much reading that you can do. And feeling of, of anxiousness and you know solitude that you just want to get away from and you want to have that interaction with people and you want to take that phone call and be able to to, to, to feel like you're providing guidance and all those things that we do in our normal days in our in our work life. And being able to get back to work, for me, was so key. And I always tell folks, I'm not proposing to get back to work as quickly as, as I did, but at least get yourself into a social situation where there's a social club, going to the gym, getting yourself out of the house, and having that interaction it was absolutely so key in making you feel like you're, you're back to yourself again. Wow, that's awesome. My last question, Alex, man, this is just a fascinating story. I can go on all day, but I commit to my guests that I won't take up their time. So my last question for you is, how has, if at all, your perspective before the stroke versus after the stroke changed from a, about your life or just how you think about life in general? You know, that's a, a great question, Jenny. I think for me in particular, I look back and uh, life in terms of work and vacationing and how precious life truly is and how quickly it can absolutely turn on a dime. One of the things that I committed to my kids, one of the things that I committed to Jen as well, that we would be spending as much of my available vacation time on a go-forward basis as we possibly can. And obviously the first year post my stroke, there wasn't a whole lot that I could do but this year in particular, you know, we've got several vacations that we're, we've already done in Hawaii. We've done some weekend trips. We're getting ready to go to Europe at, uh, in October. I think really appreciating the fact that, that life is short, uh, that the people that you work with are not going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you know what, Alex, you've been working too hard. You should go take a vacation. You as an individual own that in your work life. And it doesn't matter what company you work for or what industry you're in is being able to take charge and understand that, hey, my, my health, my mental well-being, and my time with my family and my friends is the absolute most important thing in my life. And I think having that life event happening with the stroke, not that I didn't think those things were important, but you definitely, rather than just think it, you now, you, you, you now walk that walk instead of just talking it. So we make vacations happen. We try and have experiences, the simple things as going up you know, to Santa Barbara, and enjoying the bike ride, you know, we try and photograph those things, capture them, you know, whenever we can, and just really, you know, appreciate the wonderful gift that, that life is, and, and being able to live life to the fullest every single day. But that, that's a realization. Again, it was there before, but now I make it a point to live it. And I think all of us really need to carve out that time, the amount of vacation time that you're given through work, and take full advantage of it. Yes, that that is actually a that's a great. I always ask people, what do you what do you want to tell the people? But I think you've already did with that because I I am really trying to make sure that I focus on that as well. And 
man, your story and other stories are just something just to remind me. And, and I share with anyone that I can. Of course, I'm having a podcast, so I try to, um, that we have to take time for ourselves and recognize our bodies and think about what we're doing and understanding that just because you say, oh, this person's worse than I, don't look at gratefulness that way. You know, look at how you can continuously improve yourself. And man, this is just a pleasure for me to have you on, Alex. Look, I will say, is there one anything you want to say to the people? Because I committed to you 40 to 45 minutes and I have one more minute left. Well, I, I appreciate that, Janine. You know, I, I don't think there's anything more to say than I haven't already said. I think just to summarize it is, you know, from a, from a health perspective, specific to the stroke, uh, we talked about the things that you need to be doing as you get older, particularly when you reach the age of 50, you know, pay attention to those little heart flutters that go on because there's a good chance that it's probably AFib. And, you know, it's not a death sentence. It's something that can be very manageable and, and taken care of through either medication, through lifestyle modification, and even more simple than that, you know, making sure that you're hydrated and you drink, you drink plenty of water every single day. Managing that piece of it is important. Um, we hit it on earlier as well is understanding fast, you know, F-A-S-T, remember that as you're, as you're thinking about stroke and you're with your, your aging parents. Know the signs of stroke and make sure that you're able to get people the, the proper medical attention when you recognize those things. And if you are in an unfortunate situation where it's you as an individual or the family member that happens to experience a stroke, there is life after, after, after the stroke. Um, but you have to own your rehabilitation. You have to ask a lot of questions and making sure that you get the proper care they restore you back to what you feel was your previous life. And only you as an individual can own that process. So you have to be assertive. You've got to ask the right questions and make sure that you got the right help because the help is out there. Services are out there. You just have to know where to go ask for them. Um, and, but that's really, that's really about it, Janine. But it was an absolute pleasure to be on the podcast. I wish you continued success and, and looking forward to, to maintaining our relationship and, and growing together. Well, thank you, Alex. Make sure to tell Jen. How fascinating was that? Make sure you guys go out to my Facebook page, All Things Dorothy's Daughter. Take a look at the video. Understand that we are all in this together. Please share this episode with a friend. Share all of these episodes with a friend. Continue to listen. And I appreciate it. You go out and have a fantastic week.